right, everybody, we're in 1 Timothy. We covered 1 Timothy verses 1 and 2 last week, and so we are going to pick right up at 3. So everybody go to 1 Timothy. We're, we're just going to jump right in on 1 Timothy because that is, 1 Timothy is exactly, whenever we jump right in, that's exactly what Paul was doing. And I'm going to show you that. But let's just start reading 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, this is Paul writing to Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Ooh, that's what we're going to preach today. Okay, so there's a whole lot there. And this is one of those passages that if we want to do topical preaching, we can make it really convenient by skipping parts of these verses. And yet we can't because we need the word. We need the fullness of the word. And we need the word to work in us. So we're going to begin moving through this. And I'm going to pray that God gives us the right hearts to receive this. Lord, Lord, I know we've prayed. But there's a beauty in prayer that we see in Revelation 5 where it says that the elders are holding the golden bowls of the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Lord, our prayers come up to you, the holy God on the throne. And you, God, who we cannot even begin to imagine except in glory and splendor, and our imaginations fell at that, but yet we know, according to Scripture, that Jesus Christ, who died for us, is seated at your right hand, is indeed interceding for us. God, in the fullness of your presence, we have to preach your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you guard my tongue. Lord, that you guard my heart. And, Lord, that you ready us for your word. Lord, protect us as we preach your word. Because we know that if we gather for your name, the darkness does not like it. And, Lord, there are parts in this passage where it would be so easy for the enemy to sneak in and take a jab or take a heart. Lord, our aim this morning is love from a pure heart and a clear conscience and sincere faith. Be with us, Lord, and may you alone be honored in what we preach, how we preach, and how we live it. I pray so in your son's holy name. Amen. Okay, so in some of Paul's letters, he, he starts off Paul, Timothy, and then he jumps in with something like, Oh, I long to see you again. It's been so long. I, I praise my Father. He starts off with all this, uh, this desire to see them again, the recipients. But, but here he doesn't. Paul gets right to business. 
This is the Paul, keep in mind, if you go back to last week, this is the Paul who hated the church, who was persecuting Christians, and who was going to arrest more Christians so that they could be further persecuted. This is the Paul who had a completely wrong view of Jesus, and now he is writing to Timothy about how the church should conduct itself, about about what godly leaders look like, and how we should live the Christian life. This is that Paul writing to Timothy, and he immediately jumps into it, not with... Oh, Timothy, how I long to be with you again. And, and I can't wait. And I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Like he does that with other churches. With Timothy, he says, let's get to business. And the business is you need to stop the false teachers. So we're just going to jump right in there. If I were doing this as my quiet time, as my study time, this might be one of those passages where I would read it and be like, man, they had to deal with some junk back then. And, and this really doesn't apply to me right now. But all of Scripture that God has fully breathed applies to all of us, and we need to glean from this what it meant for them and then what it also means for us. Y'all, this is so incredibly applicable to us today. We need this. So he jumps right into it, and, and what he begins with is this. Paul ran to Timothy and says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So the, the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church, which Paul had planted, by the way, this is about a decade later. So he's telling Timothy, remain there for this reason, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's what all this is about to be about. Okay, so I want to just start there because you and I, we live in, a, we live in the Bible Belt, and everybody here goes to church or has been to church or everybody here is a a Christian or they have the t-shirt at least and the bumper stickers and and so we we kind of pick up on this Christianese like we have our own way of talking we throw around the words like theology and doctrine and the truth is we say them in church but we don't always maybe know fully what they mean so just real quick doctrine is this it is a belief or set of beliefs that is held to and taught by a church political party or any other group But most primarily, whenever we say doctrine, we're talking church. Well, what's the church's doctrine? What's their doctrine of of this, their doctrine of that? Whenever you look into cross life and you go to our statement of faith, you're looking at our doctrine. You're looking to the things that we hold dear as a church. Therefore, members, I know it's a little intimidating. Uh, I'll never forget um, Matt Jarvis's face whenever I pulled out the, the giant books of systematic theology I'm like, great, you're members now. Hey, here's a gift. And I brought out these massive books. He's like, oh, okay, hang on. Redo. We want to try again. Um, yeah, there's a reason that as a church, we give out this book, um, which is Grudem's Systematic Theology and Grudem's Christian Ethics to all of our members. Because these shape doctrine, even whenever I can't preach it or one of the elders can't sit down with you. They walk you through, well, what does God say about creation and, and who is Jesus and, and we always hear the word atonement like what does atonement really mean and, and what does it not mean and so Grudem is only one voice there are plenty of other good systematic theologies absolutely they will walk you through what we should scripturally biblically believe and you and you have that as a resource because one day I may not be able to answer a question or, or Mike not be able to meet you or, or Jared can't or, or Trent is not available and or you're sitting there and you're reading the Bible you're like wait, wait, wait a second what does it actually mean that, that, that there's a hell like what are, what's all those scriptural references these books help you shape that they're books of doctrine and so part of what we believe at Cross Life is that 
The leaders are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, like you're going to hear that today actually as part of this. But Paul cared about doctrine. Timothy cared about doctrine. You read the Bible and you see that all of God's leaders cared about doctrine. And we're not preaching doctrine in our churches anymore because it's not that attractive. Right? We don't need more topics. We just need healthy doctrine. And doctrine will shape how we live, how we think, how we breathe, how we move. But they were teaching a false doctrine, a a different doctrine. So that's what doctrine is. But just to kind of bring it home real quick, what you believe about God, that's doctrine. What you believe about Jesus Christ, that's doctrine. What you believe about Jesus' return, that's doctrine. What you believe about marriage is doctrine. Like these are deeply seated, held beliefs within the church. That's what doctrine is. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says, they're teaching the wrong doctrine. And you need to tell them to stop. We don't do that in our days. Well, I don't know about that doctrine. <clears throat> oh, well, but you know, it's, it's my church, so I'm just going to stay there and I can outlast them. I've been there a whole lot longer. No. The pastors are accountable for their doctrine and there must be a healthy plurality of elders and leaders who can call them out for false teaching. But also, there must be a check with the congregation. You're going to hear this in just a little bit. That if I am teaching a false doctrine, you're going to know it's a false doctrine or you're going to suspect it's a false doctrine and you need to, in loving kindness, come to me because if I'm teaching a false doctrine and I didn't know it and you let me go and wander away, which is what these false teachers do, then you have not loved me. I am in danger as a teacher, according to Scripture, of all that I teach and all that I preach and all that I lead. And I'm held to a greater account. So, you know, doctrine matters. And doctrine matters. I'll tell you, everybody has a doctrine of God. Everybody has a doctrine of Jesus Christ. Everybody has a doctrine of this thing called salvation. But not everybody is right. Okay? Everybody holds these ideas and these notions. I like to say everybody's a theologian, just most people aren't good at it. We all have these thoughts of God, but they're not accurate. We must always pull them in line with Scripture. So one question might be, if we're looking at the landscape of the church and we're looking at Ephesus, one question we might have, if doctrine is so incredibly important, then why doesn't God do something about it? I mean, there are false teachers all over the place, y'all. Turn on the TV, turn on the radio, drive down the road. This is not me being very particular, though I am. This is just the reality. We know that this is going to happen because it says very explicitly that in the end times, people will amass teachers for themselves that tickle their ears and teach a false doctrine because it makes them comfortable. You should always be checking me, by the way. Just because I preach it, you don't need to take that as the gospel. You need to be a Berean. You're going to hear that again today. You need to go back to Scripture and test what I'm saying to make sure that it's actually right. Because just because I stand up here, just because I've preached every, every Scripture as much as I can with full conviction, doesn't mean I'm going to get it all right. My flesh, my sin, and myself are all real things that can bring down a church. So you must always check. That's why I like to begin and immerse ourselves in our church in prayer, But if, if God cares so much about doctrine, if everybody's a theologian and has doctrinal views, then why doesn't God like do something about it? That's the first question. And you can find this. Actually, go to Ephesians chapter 4. I promise you, we're going to move through this passage, but I want to set some of the context here for why this is an important passage for us. Ephesians 4, if God loves his church, 
How will he protect it? What will he do? And we see this in Ephesians 4. This is one of the hearts of cross life, is to cling to this truth right here. It's why we, we hold the pulpit, which is actually just a, a fancy music stand, magnetic, you know, so your iPad doesn't fall out. So that's why we, that's why we hold the idea of the, of the pulpit in such high regard. Because we don't want good orators up here. We don't want, you know, very wise people who've studied that. We want people of biblical character that we're going to see in 1 Timothy. Because here's, the, here's what we see in Ephesians 4. Verse 11 and what you're going to hear is this, that God protects His church through godly leadership who have a role. Ephesians 4.11 says, And He, Jesus, because by the way, the rest of the context is that Jesus has triumphed over the grave. He is going in triumphal procession up to heaven. And it says, And along the way, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, which are the overseers, pastors, elders, and teachers. Now look at verse 12. Why would He give the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers? To do one thing, y'all. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. God's way of protecting His church is through the appointing of godly leaders. And 1 Timothy and Titus and 2 Timothy show us what godly leadership actually looks like. And it doesn't come down to how big of a flock you have or a congregation, how many years in ministry, how many podcast hits, how many, your PhD or your MDiv. Like none of those are the credentials of 1 Timothy and Titus. It's all about the character of the man of God that God has called. So Christ gift to the church for its protection and its equipping for its sanctification is its leaders. And what had happened in Ephesus is leaders had emerged and they weren't healthy. And what can happen in a church very easily is that leaders can emerge and they're not healthy. The shepherds, the overseers, elders, pastors, those are all words that we can use for the word episkopos. Like whenever it talks in 1 Timothy about... Um, about the elders or the overseers. We translate in America a whole lot pastors, uh, bishop. Um, episkopos is the original Greek word, and all of those are valid translations. So to say that you believe in a plurality of elders is the plurality of pastors or plurality of shepherds, plura plurality of overseers. But y'all, our role is not only to feed the flock the word that God has given us, it's not only to protect the flock, but it's to stand guard over it. It's to equip it. It's to make sure that we are, are doing our job. So you must, by the way, be very careful of this. Be careful of a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's what had happened at Ephesus. Here were leaders, and they sounded very sincere. It made sense until you start actually testing it against Scripture. And you begin testing it against Scripture, and you're like, that doesn't quite match up. So either they are right or Scripture is right, and they're contradicting one another. Y'all, Scripture must always triumph. It must always be what reigns. So God has given godly men to lead. He's given godly women to lead alongside as well. And we will talk about that later in 1 Timothy, because that's its 
that's a fun passage to preach. Man, we, we, we just picked a hard book. Um, Andy and I are sitting there going, okay, who gets the passage on uh, female leadership in the church? Oh, okay, okay. You got now, we're, we're actually, I think it's healthy for us as a young church to walk through Scripture to have these things in front of us, okay? So that's all been kind of setting the table. I want you to understand that the leadership, the pastor of the church, the one who is the primary teacher at the pulpit in Sunday school, in D groups, it matters what they teach because your soul is affected by it. Paul tells Timothy, I urged you, I told you, remain at Ephesus and tell them to not teach in that way. So what are they teaching? Let's listen in. Whenever he says, verse 3, now 4, now we're going to just start pushing through. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. I'm just like on a very real level, what? Like, why why does that matter to me, Ricky, in Fort Smith, Arkansas right now? Like, what's actually going on here? Y'all, they were teaching, as I've already kind of alluded to, they were teaching a different doctrine, and they were devoting themselves to myths, um, to these old stories, and to genealogies. That's what they were preoccupied with. That's what they're devoting themselves to. You know what they're not devoting themselves to if they're devoting themselves to those things? They're not devoting themselves to Jesus Christ. A right and real full doctrine will always be seated on Jesus Christ. He will be the primary example. He will be the one that sustains us. He will be the one that we run to whenever we say, I can't do that, but you in me can. The mystery that has been hidden from all ages, Colossians says, is Christ in us. Like So Jesus Christ has to be the primary doctrine, not genealogies, not old myths, not these old stories, but They have to be devoted. We have to be devoted to Jesus Christ. And y'all, we live in an age when a sincerely spoken word at the pulpit, a sincerely spoken word by a smooth orator can sound so godly and yet be completely devoid of Christ completely. If I can speak so smoothly and so sincerely and I can give you great wisdom, or it would sound like it, and yet you're not hearing the gospel and Jesus Christ, and our need of a Savior who came for us, oh, you should be careful. I do believe that there's validity in David and Goliath and seeing how God equips people to overcome great obstacles. But the truth is, we're more like Goliath than we are David. I mean, we are more prone to be against God than to be the one that God chose in our natural self. We're more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees than we are Peter who's right along. I like to be Peter. You know, he just runs his mouth a whole lot. No, I'm, that's not who I am in my, my flesh. I'm usually the one who's questioning God. God, are you sure you got that one right? Are, right we, you hear what I'm saying? Don't only hear how it's delivered. Actually pay attention to the content of what's being delivered. So, so how do you do that? If I'm sitting here saying you better be questioning me at all times, I don't mean that in an anti-authoritarian way. I simply mean it as you should care what I'm preaching. If it's for the health of Christ's bride, which he has redeemed and which he is bringing home, and we're going to be with him forever and ever, you should care what I'm teaching and what others are hearing. You need to make sure that I'm actually feeding the flock from his word. So it's simply this. Read on your own. 
study the word. Like next week, guess just so you know, we're going to start in, in verse 12 and we're just going to keep moving. It's in this way that we have moved through Galatians and James and John and, and many other books. But you know where we're going, but you be studying also, but be a Berean. That's what we see in, in the book of Acts. They would deliver the word. The apostles would deliver the word, and then the Bereans would go home, and they would study. They would read. They would try to make sure that it was actually in accordance. But that's what you can do. It's kind of like a, and then I, I would say be sensitive. Now, this is a really, because I'm just a simple guy. You know how whenever you go to drink a Coke, and you, you pick it up, and you take a drink, you're like, oh, mm, it's off. Something's not quite right. And so you take another sip, and you're trying to figure out what's quite wrong with it, and you finally realize, oh, it's flat. Right, you take that first sip, you know something's off. When you hear about doctrine, be sensitive to the Spirit because you're going to know something's off. You might not know what it is, but you know that there's something that didn't quite click right. Something didn't quite settle. Because James says, if any man likes wisdom, let him ask, and God will give it freely. And then it later tells us that the wisdom of God is first peace of, or, I'm sorry, that the peace of, that the wisdom of God is pure and peaceable. It's easy to be entreated, which means it's easy to communicate and it resonates. It's reasonable. And we can, so the spirit in me, the spirit in you, preaching through the spirit of God about this, the, the spirit-infused scripture that he moved me into right, that will have peace among us. And whenever it doesn't, you go, hmm, I need to look into that a little bit more. And sometimes you will find that the preacher was right. We didn't like it in our flesh. Sometimes you find the preacher was wrong. All right, here we go. These, these, uh, these genealogies, these myths, here's what it all comes down to. I'm, I don't want to push into each one of them. But for the Jews, there was, a there, was, there was a great pride in their nationalistic identity as Jews. If they could trace their genealogy all the way back to Abraham, then they were God's people. Right? It was all about this generational faith, not in the gospel, but in where they came from. And so what these false teachers would do is they would basically push the gospel aside and say, but remember, we are God's chosen people. We are the people of his possession. He will be with us. And they totally neglect a full understanding of the gospel. A full understanding of the gospel is that there is neither Jew nor Greek, Scythian or slave, male or female, and that Scripture even says that one is a Jew spiritually. So they were trying to hold on to these genealogies, and they would devote themselves to this. Don't get me wrong. I think it's good to know where you came from. I still have no idea where I came from, by the way. But supposedly, I came from somewhere because I'm here right now. But I think that the genealogy is good. But they put everything in their genealogy and nothing in their faith. That's what the false teachers were trying to do. They were trying to uh, point them back to... Uh, where I, I put it here somewhere. I think Peter calls them old wives' tales. Um, I don't know. There, there's a couple of different ways that we could phrase it. But here, here's a catch for you. He says, going on in the verse, that these things promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. There's our litmus test. Litmus test just simply meaning this. A way to test this is, does it lead to speculation rather than treasuring Christ? Anytime it's preached where you don't see Christ proclaimed and Christ held strong and the gospel made much of, but you kind of start going down this rabbit trail over here, then you need to be careful. If it leads to speculation rather than the stewardship from God, which is our faith, then we need to be careful is what is being taught settled on the faith that you have in God. Let me, uh, I just 
one more time, I want to remind you very pastorally and lovingly that you and I will hear very, very sincere false teaching and it will sound appealing and convincing. It can never negate scripture in any way and be healthy. There is no new knowledge. There is no new revelation. God, in various times in the past, spoke through prophets and priests and the judges and many of many men appointed. Today, he speaks through Jesus Christ, his son, who is a radiance of the glory of God. Like that's all in Hebrews at the very beginning. You want to know God, you see Christ. You want to push deeper in the mystery of God, you look at Jesus Christ. You want to know the radiance of God, you push into Jesus Christ. Like that's what we keep pushing to over and over again. Now, Paul does clarify before he, he really clarifies more. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So he says, I've got three things here by which I'm writing. And this is off the very beginning of that letter. Because remember, this is a letter. We, we read it through in its entirety a couple of weeks ago. This is a letter that has some hard things for us to wrestle with. And so Paul here at the beginning is saying, I'm doing this in love. I'm doing it with a pure heart. I'm doing it with a good conscience and sincere faith. Translation for me. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be unreasonable. I just want you to try and understand. That's what Paul's kind of doing here. I'm speaking in love. I have a pure heart that has been changed by the gospel. He has a good conscience before a holy God and a sincere faith in the finished work of Christ. He's speaking in love to Christ's church about his church. And because he loves God and the church for which Christ died, he must speak. And he goes on. He says, certain persons by swerving from these, from this triad, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, from swerving from these, they have, look at this, they've wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Y'all, that's, whenever we move from the gospel, we move from a pure heart. Whenever we move from the gospel, we move from a sincere faith. Whenever we move from the gospel, then we move from, from uh, the, we, I just kind of kept writing the triad here, <laughs> but he's writing about the triad of a changed and redeemed life. The heart, the conscience, the walk. And Paul says, I'm doing all of this in love. I'm about to speak to you fully in love. The, the false teachers, to be quite honest, it, it irritates me. It, it frustrates me because I'm like, how in the world could they teach that? It's actually very tragic and heartbreaking. Because if you go back to that previous passage, it says, by swerving from these, by swerving from the heart and the conscience and the, and the sincere faith, by swerving from them, they have wandered away into vain discussion. Didn't, didn't just even walk away. It's, you ever just kind of wandered through the woods and then all of a sudden you turn around like, oh, uh-oh. And you've got to find your way back. There is something evil and intentional but then there's sometimes just that slippery slope and it leads them to wander away. But I love what he says. This makes me very happy. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In other words, they're telling you about the law, but they have no idea what they're talking about. There's an old proverb that I came across and I loved it because it's so applicable. The old proverb says, ignorance is bold. I'm like, oh, I like that one. Ignorance is bold. It's usually the ignorant who make the loudest, most confident claims, and underneath the clamor, there's just an ignorance of truth. They just don't know, but man, they're putting it out there. 
You know, there's a lot of clamor in this world. There are a lot of bold assertions. And Paul says that's how they are speaking. They're speaking boldly in the church. They would come in here today, and they would teach boldly, and yet it's completely wrong. Paul says they don't even know what they're talking about, but they keep talking about it. I just like it whenever Paul is able to clearly say what I would probably not have the full guts to do. I'm like, oh, I wish I could be that bold. But Paul gets it. That's why he's bold. So Paul warned Timothy, charged him not to teach, stop them. Now I want to move to the next part. This is verse 8. This is the law. I want you to hear my heart on this. I'm going to look more at my notes closer here to the end because I want to make sure that, that what God put in front of me, what God laid on my heart is what I'm clearly teaching. Paul says in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. little wordplay there. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Just a, a clear commentary um, says it this way. Rules and laws are not given for those who are disobedient. Rather, they are given to correct those who are disobedient. That's what he's saying. The law is good if you use it lawfully. Master commentator Trent McKinley helped me one day because I was... I was reading um, through Exodus, and I'm getting to Exodus, and I'm moving through it. And and sometimes, I don't know about you, but I get to like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and I'm like, okay, God, I know it's all inspired. It's all profitable for teaching and reproof, but like, can I speed read this section? Like sometimes the law just gets so heavy, and you're just kind of going through it, and you're like, why does it matter that there were 85,000 from, from that clan who were allowed to, like, why? But anyways, I'm moving through it this year. And as I'm moving through it, like, I'm reading the law. And I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. Like, this is so good. This is how a holy God is communicating holiness to a very naturalistic mankind. Because we don't really understand holiness in our world. We have this idea of what it is. But one day, the reality will completely wash away our ideas. And we will see holiness and grandeur and majesty like we've never seen before. Whenever we see him face to face. That's the promise that we've been given as a redeemed. But I was fascinated. Like, I would read about leprosy. And I'm like, this is so cool. And I'm underlining, I've never done that before. And then I would get to, what do you do with leprosy? in a house and they would remove the plaster and they would take it out and then the priest would walk through and then if they found another leprous spot like in the house then like there's a whole procedure and how would they anoint and appoint the priest like I'm reading all this I'm like this is so cool this is fascinating it's neat how they would do and I'm, I'm just amazed by it and so Trent and I are here one morning and we're, we're putting the tables in place and and I said Trent I'm reading Exodus and and Leviticus and I'm just The law is really fascinating. Like, I'm really enjoying this. Isn't that kind of weird? And he said, well, I'm not surprised. It should be enjoyable. The law isn't for law law keepers. It's for the lawless. If you're not doing anything wrong, it should be enjoyable. And I went, yeah. And then he said, someone who's not speeding doesn't have to worry about the speed limit. So Trent McKinley, master commentator, right there. Yes, uh, this is... Trent read our opening verse this morning, so I do say that tongue-in-cheek. But, it, y'all, you know what Trent gave us, gave me that morning? Very sound doctrine. The law is meant for the law breakers, not the law keepers. And Christ has fulfilled the law. He kept the law for us. So those of us who've put our faith in Christ, there was that, that great exchange whenever he took his perfect life, placed it upon us as fulfilling all of the law, and then he took our brokenness, put it upon him, and in that great exchange... We were declared just. 
It's actually pretty radical what the gospel does. But what they were doing that made them false teachers is they were not resting in the finished work of Christ as a fulfilling of the law. They were adding to it. The gospel plus these things is what will get you saved. Or you, yeah, it's good that you have faith, but you actually need to make sure that you're, that you're fulfilling all of the law. And Paul says, y'all, the law is not bad. Sometimes we get that idea as we sit there and as we're getting ready to study our Bible, we're like, well, I don't need the law anymore. Yeah, you do. I need the law. It's in the law that God defined the structure of the Israelites' life and he directed them to the holiness of God. As you read the law, even as someone who's already been saved and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you begin to understand, oh my goodness, this is a God who is completely like anybody else. And he's trying to get them to understand that the holy life that is rooted in him looks radically, totally different. And get this, that God from the beginning has always told his people how he wants to be worshipped and how they can walk in obedience to him. The law laid that out to them. We don't read it to say, well, I need to make sure I'm checking this box so that I can be saved. We read the law in light of Christ and understand that because we are saved, because we've been redeemed, then we can enjoy the law. We get to enjoy His, his, we get to enjoy his holiness. All of the law as you read it, you begin to see these glimmers and you're like, wait, like that feast, that Passover, Jesus is the Passover. That's a shadow of the fullness of Christ. And, and this wandering in the desert, I would, like the Israelites being pulled out of Egypt by God who gave them and who sustained them all throughout the desert and led them to the promised land is God redeeming me from my life of sin and leading me through the wilderness of this life to the promised land. Like there are these great, wonderful parallels rooted right there in the law, but they are to highlight the holiness and the goodness of God. And the false teachers are saying, oh, the gospel. No, 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 no. The law, you need the law. You need to keep checking the boxes. You need to make sure that you're earning his favor. We have his favor because of Jesus Christ who died for us. We show up today not because we want to make God happy, but because he's made us his own. We want to be here. There's a different desire and yearning within us. So all of the law is just a shadow, and they find their substance in Jesus Christ. So now listen to me real quick. We do not need to abandon the law of the Old Testament, though. Hear me fully. If you just take that one sentence, I just became a false teacher. (laughs) We do not need to abandon the law of the Old Testament. We do need it to remind us of God's holiness. We do. We need it to remind us that He is not a God like us. But listen to this. And that points us back to the great glory and praise of God in Jesus Christ. The law reminds us again and again that we need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. All of mankind's greatest need is a Savior, and the law reminds us of that. Can you imagine keeping that law in the way that you would feel every single day and every single year? So I summarize it in this way. For the Christian, for you who say that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm saying look to the law, oh, but glory and praise Jesus Christ because he's fulfilled it for you and me. The weight of it's no longer laid on us. But the knowledge of what it reveals to us is what we need. He is high. He is holy. He is exalted. And and God, Jesus Christ, they get to call the shots because they created all things. They get to set the laws because it's their creation. So I was amazed reading through the law over and over again where God would simply say, Do not do this. I am the Lord. Make sure you do this. Observe this festival. I am the Lord. Over and over again, that reminder that he calls the shots. That's what I saw over and over again. And he called the chief shot in Jesus Christ, who he sent at the appointed time. But now if you're the lost, 
For the lost, they need to look to the law and seek the Savior. It's different. The law will show you your sin. If you don't want to know sin, don't look to the law. But if you want to know what sin truly looks like, look to the law. Now, I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments, whatever I say the law. I'm saying the fullness of what they consider the law. Those first five books. But Christians, hear me. We, by faith in Jesus Christ, are no longer bound to the law, but it does clarify how we are to be distinct. Look to the Ten Commandments, for example. Are we to abandon the Ten Commandments? No. Right? We're not to abandon the Ten Commandments. We're to live them out, especially because we have been saved by Christ. Not saved by the law, saved by Christ, therefore fulfilling the law. So we honor the law because we've been saved not to be saved. That's kind of how it all gets encapsulated. Y'all with me so far? Is everything, does that feel like a flat coat to you? Or is that, y'all with me? Okay. I have more notes. I got plenty of notes here. Okay, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them to do away with them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. For you and me, believers, all is accomplished because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Don't mishear me in that, please. You don't need to go buy another goat. You don't need to worry about the sacrifices and the grain offerings and the wave offerings. No. Christ is the wave offering. He is the grain offering. He is the atonement. He is the scapegoat. He is everything that is pictured in the law. And whenever you read the law, I found myself being more and more amazed by Jesus Christ and the fullness of who he is. Okay, now here we go. So if y'all are good with that, Paul then says, understanding this, verse 9, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars and perjurers, and whatever else. So it's not a comprehensive list. For whatever else is contrary to sound, look at that word again, doctrine. So he's going to give us a whole list over here that's not comprehensive. And he says, these things do not line up with sound doctrine. I'm just going to tell you that we're going to move through this list so I can clarify But then I do want to look at that one where it says men who practice homosexuality. I want you to hear my pastor's heart of how I walk this out in life and what my convictions are on it. And it may spur on many, many cups of coffee and conversations. Because I'm just going to tell you, I have a desire, but I don't know how to do it well. Okay? But we're going to look at that one because not to make it a topic that we focus on, but because it's so prevalent in our society It's right here in Scripture. I think we need to look at that. Okay, so here are things that are not in line, and these people are considered lawbreakers. The lawless and disobedient. Those are rebels who refuse to be subjected to a higher authority. That's kind of what it breaks down to. I'm just kind of giving like a Arkansan, Fort Smith breakdown if I can. But, But they are rebels. Rebels need the law. Great job. Ungodly and sinners. These are people who delight in sin and ungodliness. They're sinning, they're ungodly, and they love it. They are lawbreakers. They need the law. And the law will show them that they are sinning and that they are ungodly. Side note, Ray Comfort has a process of evangelism called Way of the Master, where he uses the Ten Commandments to expose people to the sin that they didn't see before. 
and, and it's really great. You can just look into it. I've got the book. You can borrow it. You can, you can have it. We'll get another one. Okay, for the unholy and profane. This is for those they don't desire holiness and they are irreligious. Like they're just, they don't care about religion. They're unholy. And if you take this first set of, of three pairings, then you'll actually hear an echo of the first four commandments. Like if they're unholy, if they're profane, if they do not desire the Lord, if they delight in their sin, then they're breaking one of those first four commandments all kind of lumped together there. With that in mind, let's look at the next one. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, some translations say who kill their fathers and mothers, but I think even a deep disregard for them, like a deep-seated rebellious disregard striking physically, but I think even striking in their mind and with their words, they're lawbreakers. So, and y'all, we can hear that uh, echo in the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. It says for murderers. Y'all, murderers need the law to convict them of their sin. And in that, we hear the echo of the sixth commandment. See what Paul did there? He's very clever under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says for the sexually immoral. This is those who indulge in any sexual immorality outside the covenant of marriage. They can look in many different ways at many different times throughout history. But outside that covenant of marriage, those actions, that's what that encompasses. Y'all, they use that which was a good gift for marriage and intended only for marriages, and they make it evil, and they delight in it. And they need the law. And y'all, we hear in that an echo of the seventh commandment. We go to the next one, enslavers. This refers to kidnappers and slave traders. Oh, those days are past. No, there's an entirely new development in our culture where this is absolutely going on in an increasing dangerous wave. And Fort Smith is not immune to it or far from it. We hear an echo of the Eighth Commandment there. And then we get to liars and perjurers, those who intentionally lie and those who promise one thing and then break that oath. And then we hear in that the, command, the, the breaking of the Ninth Commandment. Like All of these, they have almost a parallel to them. But then he, he covers, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He says, in accordance with, uh, the sound doctrine is going to be in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So anytime, anytime you hear a pastor, preacher, teacher endorsing or dismissing these things, then it is not in accordance with sound doctrine. That's what you and I need. I want to repeat that. If you, have a, if you hear a pastor preacher, teacher, endorsing or dismissing these things as not being sin, then that is not in accordance with sound doctrine according to Scripture. Oh, but Ricky, who am I to say that it's sin? Like, I can't tell somebody that that's sin. Who am I? You're nobody. We don't get to define sin. God defines sin, and that's what you can tell somebody is, I I'm nobody. I'm a sinner too. Like, I have my own struggles. I have my own failings. I know my sin because God has said this is sin. I know sin because he told me that is sin, not because I said it is, but because a holy God who created you said it's sin. The creator gets to set the laws. Okay. When these things are no longer taught as sin, doctrine is at stake on so many levels. And the danger is that we let culture shape our convictions rather than the word and the law of God. We have to be careful. You know why you need other believers? Because you need to be affirmed that you're not crazy sometimes. You need to be affirmed by like-minded believers who are holding and clinging to the exact same things you are and who, who treasure those things. All right. Okay, so this entire list, there is one that is likely, maybe not, 
that is likely very challenging for us, and, and because of it, it's at the forefront of our culture, and that's the issue of homosexuality. So I want to give some quick considerations. These are things that I've wrestled with. These are not uh, necessarily, I'm not a verse here. I'm telling you pastorally, these are things that I've wrestled with as a real Christian walking alongside people in life. And these are the convictions that have kind of settled at this time. Number one. Guess, by the way, I'm so glad y'all are with us today. You came in just the right passage for, for a wonderful message. I've got, I've got about... I've got enough here, um, and I'm not trying to bore you. I'm just trying to have you consider these things, and we drink coffee, and we think through these for the glory of Christ. But number one, homosexuality is a sin. It is clearly defined and clarified in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You cannot read the Bible and not see that homosexuality is not a sin. It is clear. We have to know that. It's there. Number two, I do believe that we have elevated this sin above others in our churches. That this be, has become the great sin that we are worried about whenever there are so many other sins whenever we gather. So we've all been saved from our own sin. I, I'm telling you, I'm just reading because I, I don't want to mess this up. And then, But we've all been saved from our own sins by the great mercy, grace, and love of our God. My sins before a holy God were just as egregious and offensive as this or any other sin, and yet He saved me. All sin is equally offensive before God. Consideration number three. I do believe that there is a difference in this sin also because it is not simply an act but a lifestyle. Therefore, it is challenging to address and consider. However, this is true of any habitual sin that is a stronghold. Yet God is powerful and mighty to break any and all strongholds. Number four, I do believe that there are people born with a greater propensity towards certain sins in general. I do not say that they are, quote, born that way and therefore without excuse, but that they have a greater temptation to certain sins. This may be gluttony, insincerity, addictive tendencies, alcoholism, homosexuality. I believe that there is a greater propensity towards certain sins in certain people, but those sins may be various. Yet, God is greater than their temptation and demands their holiness. And God can redeem and save to the uttermost. To be born with a greater propensity toward a sin does not excuse sin, but it does explain why the temptation may exist. And everyone, y'all, faces temptation. Even Christ was tempted, but he did not sin. It's what we do with the temptation that matters. Do we indulge or do we flee it? So that was my number four. I believe some are born with a greater propensity, not born that way, therefore without excuse, but they have a greater temptation toward certain sins. Number five. I do believe that there are many who have struggled with the same-sex attraction, and yet, because of their love of Jesus and the salvation of God, do not indulge in that temptation anymore. I have walked alongside them. They serve faithfully in ministry, married to their wife, kids, wonderful, but had to walk through that phase, had to deal with that temptation, and to be honest, probably still struggle with that temptation and putting it to death for the glory of Christ. So I do believe that because of their love of Jesus and the salvation of God, they do not indulge in that temptation. Number six, I've, I've got seven, technically, but I'm, I'm going to go with seven. 
I do desire that we as believers extend great love to those who sin in this way, not to condone their sin, but so that they may hear the gospel and see the evidence of it in our lives. We were once lost in sin, dead in the trespasses in which we once walked. But God, because of the great love with which he had for us, he loved us and he made us alive with him so that we may show his immeasurable riches, so that we have the ministry of reconciliation to take to others. So in, in coming alongside them and loving them, we're not condoning. You're going to hear that in just a second. So then your question is probably this. Ricky, what does that look like to love them and yet not condone? I don't rightly know, to be honest. I think we need wisdom. I think we need grace and humility and boldness. We trust the Spirit with our obedience. We cannot compromise our convictions in God's words. Yet we must also love our neighbor as ourselves. I don't know how that looks in Jared's life and in Brooke's life and then in the Massengale's life. I don't know. It, it might look a little bit different. But use wisdom and have a very healthy perspective and doctrine on what this sin is and what it is not. And then this last one, which is really kind of an application for us, is someone who practices homosexuality welcome at Cross Life. We're just going to end the sermon right there, right? But are they welcome? My question is, are liars, perjurers, alcoholics, and addicts? Yes. They're all welcome here. They're welcome together with us, but you need to hear this. They cannot become members. Membership is reserved for those who profess Christ and whose life exemplifies that profession. Therefore, we could not have a member who was unrepentant and willfully walking outside of God's design in an impure doctrine or with an impure doctrine. So they are welcome, but I can just tell you they will be uncomfortable as we preach in accordance with God's word, but perhaps that discomfort is the conviction by which Christ calls them to his side as well. So if next week we walk in and a homosexual couple walks in we're not shutting the doors. We're not changing anything. We're exalting Christ and praising Him and trusting God to do what He does in the context of bringing them alongside a congregation who truly loves and honors the Lord. But we will never compromise nor condone our stand on that sin. But we will greatly love them because we have been greatly loved. Does that get messy and confusing? Absolutely it does. He didn't pull us out of this world already he will one day bring us to his side. But praise God, he pulled me to his side here. But he left us here so that we can be a light to our neighbors and serve them. All my notes are available. You just ask me and I'll send them to you. But because this is a major cultural issue, I did kind of, I went a little bit longer. I hit this topic, not so that we could just have a topic right here in the sermon, but so that I think these are things that we need to wrestle with in our culture. And we'll deal with these things in Scripture Whenever we run into them in Scripture, I want you to have those considerations. Y'all, our aim and all that we do is going back to what Paul says. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's why we do what we do here. That's why we preach how we preach. And that's why we take the stands we do. Not so that we can puff ourselves up, but because we love. Our aim is rooted in a pure heart. Y'all listen to this, and then we're going to pray. 
It's rooted in a pure heart. May we search ourselves. Is our heart pure? We do it with a good conscience. So may we be sensitive to conviction and ready to repent. And may we have a sincere faith. So may we be sure of the salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus. Because without that, there is no salvation whatsoever. Now that's a, that's a lot to try and condense down into nine pages of 12-point Times New Roman. There are many discussions get this, that we can have and that I hope you do have. Like, I hope that this isn't the end of the topics for you. I hope that as you're driving home or later in the week, you're, you're wrestling through it because that's his word working through us. Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Lord, and our aim is love. Lord, would you teach me to love better? Because in love, according to to Proverbs, we should be speaking in, in kindness and truth and binding those around our neck so that they're always with us, ever present, ever so near our heart. Scripture says so that we might find favor with both God and man. Lord, we love you. Not because we figured this all out, but because you loved us. Because of your mercy and because of your grace, we are different. We have different affections and different devotions and different things that excite us. Lord, we have a different doctrine of life because you saved us. Lord, may we never neglect the gospel. May we never forget who we were and what you've made us because all of the glory in our lives comes and goes to you. All the good that's within us really and truly is you because you loved us. Lord, may all that we do in this life be for your glory and not our own. May what cross life does be for your glory and not our own. Lord, we love you because you loved us and sent your son for us so that we may have hope and eternal redemption, not in the law, but in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.